Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. I'm going to get straight into it, Nehemiah 6. And um, in the Bible, it has its own little subheading of this, but I've just caught it. If it's on him, it's on him. God's got it so we can be confident. So in Nehemiah 5, we looked at how opposition is not just externally um, from the nation surrounding, but there was opposition to building the wall internally. Nehemiah had to go against um, the people who were, who were complaining about their rights. They believed that they had rights, that um, what was owed to them and they needed to be looked after and they were able to do this or that. Rather than looking at their responsibilities to God as Christians, as people of God, what is their responsibility to, to laying down the foundations of the wall? Um, Nehemiah's response to this was mastering his emotions, which we see later again in this, um, in this scripture. He masters his emotions. He just rallies people and gets them to honor each other and honor God. And so now we, um, we know, though, after just a victory, like normal life, when we have a victory, it doesn't just end there. That we then have a, a new opposition, a new challenge to face, and um, new victories to come. So um, that was Nehemiah 5, and now we pick it up in Nehemiah 6. When Sanballat, sorry with the names, I'm going to do my best. So there's some, some shocking names in here, and one really funny thing. Anyway, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, I don't know why they noted that Geshem was an Arab, but Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there were no breaks in it. Even though I hadn't yet installed the gates, they sent this message, come meet with us in Kepharim in the valley of Ono. So what an achievement. They've finished the wall, there's no gaps in it. And obviously everyone's heard about it. If all their enemies in distant land heard about the war being finished, obviously this is a great achievement that's being spread through the land. Everyone's hearing about the war being finished. Everyone knew about it. But the, when they've sent this message, come and meet with us in Kephrim in the Valley of Ono, the name should have given it away. Oh no. Oh no. That's not a place where you want to go. We continue on and it says, I knew they were scheming to hurt me. That's why it's probably called, oh no, they're going to hurt him. I knew they were scheming to hurt me, so I sent messengers back with this. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Notice that. Just take that in for a second. I can't come down. I'm doing a great work. Why should the work come to a standstill just so I can come down to see you? So Trish is going to break this idea down further, but we wanted to just establish it here. The, the idea of, um, I'm doing a great work, so I can't come down. It's the idea that our, our, our no's, our best no's are informed by what we've already said yes to. And so um, I thought of it simply as, as the idea of when you're hunting rabbits. We all know um, there's a saying, you can't chase five rabbits. You actually look at one rabbit and you focus in and when you know what you've said yes to the one rabbit, it informs you to say no to the other rabbits. And and saying no to the other ones enables you to stay focused, to be laser focused on what you're after and chasing. And actually, um, learning that lesson enables us to have so much more opportunity for success. When we can identify the rabbits in our lives that we want to chase, when we identify what we're saying yes to, the same way he'd said yes to building the wall, so that informed his nose to other things. When we identify what we say yes to, 
It can inform what we're going to say no to in our lives. So Trish is going to break that down a bit further. But um, when we say yes, it's usually not just a one-off, oh, yes, and that's the end of it. When there's things we want to pursue in our life, we see here with Nehemiah, he has to continue to say yes. Four times they sent this message. So four times they sent to him to come and meet him in the place in the valley of Ono. So four times they sent this message and four times I sent them the same reply. The fifth time they sent an unsealed letter with this writing. The word is among the nations and Geshem says it's true. The Arab Geshem, he says it's true, it must be. That you and the Jews are planning to rebel. That is why you are rebuilding the wall. The word is that you want to be king and that you have appointed prophets to announce in Jerusalem there is a king in Judah. The king is going to be told all of this. Don't you think we should sit down and have a talk? So that's a big threat. So he's essentially, uh, they're essentially saying to Nehemiah, we're going to tell the king that you want his throne. We're going to make him, we're going to play on his insecurities um, because you've had a great victory, a great accomplishment. We're going to play on his insecurities and tell him that you want to be king. And so firstly, he could respond out of fear. That's, that's a pretty fearful thing, but he, he doesn't. He, he responds with this. He says, I sent back to them, there's nothing to what you're saying. You did all up. Just simply that. I don't know about you, but, but I would want to justify myself there as well. I'd want to be like, hey, like, no, I haven't, I haven't done that. What I have done is I've, I've honored the king and I've built it. But no, he doesn't want to justify himself. He just, just simply has confidence in God. He has confidence in what he said yes to and says, there's nothing to what you're saying. You've made it up. Simply that, drop the mic, done. What, what a confident statement. Um, and, and I want to take note of his conf here because it plays in a little bit further on. But he, ha- he has no fear. He could have given in to fear, could have given in to trying to justify himself, but he's confident and makes his statement. It says, it continues on, it says, they were trying to intimidate us into quitting. So I continued on with greater determination. I love that. What opposition is... is you might be facing right now that can be turned into actually your, your determination. It can actually be something that fuels your determination. And we can take serious um, the Bible verse in James where it says rejoice when we, when we go through trials, when we go through challenges because it's making us lack nothing. So we see that here with Nehemiah. He, he doesn't face it and get overwhelmed by it but, but sees it for what it is and, and uses it to fuel his determination. So it goes on and says, Then I met secretly with Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, at his house. And he said, Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's find safety behind the locked doors because they're coming to kill you. Yes, coming by night to kill you. And I said, Why would a man like me, a man that trusts in God, run for cover? So here, Nehemiah He's being told by someone who, who he trusts to, to come and hide, hide away because people are coming to kill you. And his response is, why would a man like me run for cover? It can seem a bit arrogant here, but when he says a man like me, a man in his position, I believe he's referring to a man that trusts in God, a man that's doing God's will, a man that, that is chasing God's will for his life. Why should he run for cover? And it's not arrogance here, it's not pride, but, but it's, it's a confidence in God. See, when we decide that it's not on us, so when we're not confident in ourselves, in what we're doing, but our confidence is in God, 
then it's not pride in ourselves, but it's just confidence in God. It's trusting in Him and knowing that He has it. So when we're living in faith and when we're trusting in God and we've given Him control to truly submit and truly give Him control, then we can trust Him and we can be confident with it because He is in control. There's um, a Bible verse that I, that I think we've, we've changed and it says if you believe in your, in your heart and cast with your mouth that Jesus is real. I think we've changed it to He's real. But it's not. It's, it's when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. The thing with Jesus being Lord is that submitting control. He's Lord. He's in control. And when we truly give Him control and, and we're chasing, okay, God, what do you want with my life? We can trust Him that He's got our back. We can trust Him and say, why would a man like me, why would a woman like me who's, who's chasing God's will, God's got my back. What do I need to be afraid of? I love that hymn. So he says, no, I won't do it. And I realized that God had not spoken to him, but he'd uttered that prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse me and discredit me. So here again is, is um, the same thing we've seen in Nehemiah 5, where Nehemiah masters his emotions. So there's something, another powerful thing that we can learn here, the ability to not react out of emotion but to respond out of discernment. So when we take a step back um, and not react out of our emotions, we're able to see that, we're able to see the agenda, we're able to discern the, the motive behind the actions. Um, if we look at Proverbs, Proverbs was written by King Solomon, said to be the most wise man on the planet. Um, through Proverbs, there's so much about controlling your emotions and not responding to your emotions. And we see here that lesson learned in practice. And he essentially avoids the downfall of rebuilding the wall by simply taking a step back, not responding out of emotion, but responding with, um, with out of discernment. So then we come to towards the end. It says, remember, oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sanballat have done. And remember um, Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her have tried to indicate me. So we see here again, trusting God. Um, it looks a bit, well, when I originally read this, I'm like, is that, we're Christians, is that really how we're meant to respond? Like, that's a bit, um, a bit petty, trying to get down on someone else. But what we see here is, is that trust in God. He, he obviously feels like he has to remind God, so that God, don't forget, but I, I'm trusting you to deal with this. I'm not responding and trying to get it back. No, God, you're in control. I'm trusting you. And so he obviously feels like he has to remind God. But again, we see here him giving God control over responding to, to the wrongs that are being done against him instead of acting for his own justice. So we, we move on. It says, so on October the 2nd, the war was finished, just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work could be done with the help of God. See, that's really important there, with the help of God, because God gets the glory. See, when Nehemiah was confident because his trust was in God, he knew that he could trust in God because God's in control. And ultimately, he wasn't acting out of his own pride. He wasn't acting out of his ability and what he's doing. Because he was doing something for God, for God's glory. And see that God's in control. God will have your back. God will look after you and keep you safe 
when you're chasing him and being about his glory. Obviously, it's for his benefit as well. So when we see that chasing his will for our life and we create a legacy that reflects Jesus, um, we we can be confident that God's going to establish our legacy that we're trying to create. He's going to back us because we're after his glory. And so then the final verse, um, during those 52 days, many went back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles of Judah. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because his father-in-law was Shechaniah, son of Arah. And his son Jehohanan was married to the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. We'll, we'll, we'll say that's right. They kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds. And, they, uh, and then they told him everything I said. And Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate. So I love this, that he kept facing opposition. So I think um, we, see, we know it in life that the story isn't, and then they lived happily ever after, after we go through one trial. And I love that, um, that they acknowledge that here. That you know what, well, when we see victories in God, it doesn't mean the end to everything that's end to all of our opposition. That, that it's going to continue there. But when, we're, when we continue to try and change culture, when we continue to do God's will and try and spread His word, to spread the truth, to try and spread um, the love that Jesus came and radically showed. When we're doing that, we're going to continue to seek um, opposition. There's always going to be pushback, but we can trust that God's there. We can trust that when God's on it, God's on it. When we've given him control, he is in control. And even though the, we may still see threatening letters, we can just be confident and knowing that God's there, God's got it. It's in God's hands. And we can take it head on with confidence in God, not in ourselves. And we can respond not out of pride or, or, or anything in our own strength because we're not doing our own thing. We can respond in God's strength because we know we're doing His thing. We know we're doing His will. So I wanted to encourage you with that, 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 um, that we will still see opposition. Uh, I think as Christians we can um, feel a, a sense of God's let us down when we're continuing to face stuff. It's like, God, you've taken this away already. But I love here in this story we see James, that, that, that scripture in James worked out in practice. So when we, when we face opposition, when we face trial, God's molding it. God's in control. He's still, he'll have his way. He can do it. And in the process, as we continue to chase his will, he's making us without, any, without lacking. So we don't need anything else but other than the trials that God puts us through. So I'm going to pray and then take five minutes to reflect on this before Pastor Trish comes up. So dear God, thank you for your word. Uh, we just pray that um, you help us to, to understand it. And help us to navigate your word as we continue to think about it. And, um, and have your way, Lord God. We just pray that this helps to, to guide us and we understand you more so that we can be closer with you and, and have a closer relationship with you. Um, and that you're able to continue to work in us and through us, Lord God. Um, the, this world needs you, needs you, your story of hope and love. And so we just pray that you, you help us to understand this so we can understand you, so we can take your truth out to the world that needs it. In Jesus' name, amen. Going forward, so we're taking what um, the passage that we've just looked at that Luke has just pulled apart for us, and we're going to apply it. We're going to grab one thought from that, and we're going to apply it to our lives for our Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and the rest. So, um, and I love that Nehemiah had this ability to stay the course, right? He had this ability to stay the course and make his yes be his yes. Because he had a commitment to see through what God had put heart to do. 
Um, who here has seen the movie Yesterday on Netflix? Some of you, okay, for the rest of you, let me bring you up to speed. So it was released on Netflix and um, I watched it with my kids a couple of weeks ago. The premise of the movie is that a once fun-loving, adventurous woman has kids and suddenly finds herself saying no to these kids 100 times a day. I don't know if parents can relate to that situation. No, you cannot hit your sister over the head with that. No, put that down, put it away. No, you can't go until you've done blankety, blankety, blank. No, you can't eat that, put that back. Does that sound familiar? Or is that just my household? Please say it's not just my household. Um, okay. But it can sometimes feel like you are the rule setter and the boundary keeper. And while those things are healthy and good and essential for survival of your children, can I say, and the formation of their character, it's still not the main thing you want to be known for <laughs> by your kids, is it? Because there's a lot more to your love than rulemaking and boundary keeping. So in the movie, the mum sets about giving her kids a yes day. A day where, within a budget and a geographical limit, she has to say yes to her kids all day. All kinds of fun and chaos ensues as only Hollywood can. Um, but it got me thinking. So I had a really small window over Easter to spend um, with my kids without other commitments going on. And I really wanted it to be memorable. So I decided I was going to give my teens a yes day. Whew. I'm nervous just even saying it. <laughs> um, so many people told me, don't tell my children you're doing that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I told them in advance so that they could plan and dream about what ways they were going to torture me. I mean, have the most fun. Um, <laughs> they had about five days to prepare and they were plotting and scheming and researching and getting really excited because the prospect of their usual limits coming off was incredibly freeing for them, right? Meanwhile, I had five days to stew in my juices and think, what the heck have I done? Um, what are they going to make me say yes to? And just how far outside my comfort zone are they going to take me? <laughs> and so the day dawns and I'm a sweaty hot mess of anticipation and fear and excitement and dread. <laughs> but my goal, my goal was that they would get to feel um, heard and released and empowered and that we would have laughed and made memories together, but also that we would have survived their choice. Because when I googled it, lots of people had told their stories of their yes days, but a lot of them had young children and all of the cute little examples their tiny little kids asked them to do, but I was dealing with teenagers and that's a different kettle of fish. <laughs> um, and apart from that, the rules were that I couldn't know what they had in mind until the day. So, that worked with the exception of one thing, which was that son couldn't, he just couldn't hold it in <laughs> because once he realised he could do it, that was it. He couldn't keep it a secret because my son has wanted a mullet. <sighs> For about a year. And I am not at all 
a fan of mullets because I was born in the 80s and I am still scarred by the level of mullet that that decade has seared into my soul. So I have constantly, <laughs> thank you, constantly told him, no, you cannot have a mullet. And about three days <laughs> before we left for yesterday, we were driving in the car, not talking about yesterday, and he suddenly sits up really straight and he turns his head slowly towards me and he has this grin on his face and he just goes, you can't say no. And I'm like, oh, getting a haircut on yesterday. And that was the very first thing we did. <clears throat> so we got a mullet. We went go-karting and shopping and um, Georgia got a mani-pedi and we played games together and we ate and ate and ate all of the things I would normally say no to. And it was a great day with lasting memories and lasting calories. Um, <laughs> but when I asked my kids what was the best part about it, they said, the freedom to ask you to do anything. The freedom to ask you to do anything. And I wonder, I wonder what God feels like when he has the freedom to ask you to do anything. With my kids, it was in my yes that I went way past the limiting factors in our relationship and it was in my surrender to them that I entered into this world of exploration and risk and fun. I had to trust them. I had to trust their character. So I wonder, does God have my yes? Does God have your yes? That little word has so much power because there's so much control in that word because you can give it away freely or you can withhold it. And those actions will shape the lives we end up living and the flavor of them and they end up shaping our legacy. Our yes is powerful, especially when placed in part with God's yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So let's unpack that for a minute. Because yes is spoken by God. Amen is spoken by us. Amen is spoken by us. And amen means so be it, let it be done. It's us standing in agreement with what he says will happen. So let's take a look at it in the message paraphrase. Whatever God has promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. In him, this is what we preach and pray. The great amen, which is God's yes and our yes together, gloriously evident. God affirms us, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting his yes within us. By his spirit, he has stamped us with his eternal pledge, a sure beginning of what, is dint, what he is destined to complete. God is faithful. And whatever he says yes to is a yes. That's why we can rely so heavily on the promises God makes in his word. And yet we see here this desire for God. He, he desires our yes in partnership with his. Isn't that incredible? God's yes and our yes together becomes the sure thing. Who here is married or engaged? Okay, yeah, quite a few of you. If you are, then you said a pretty significant yes that would change your life forever. Um, I think we've got a photo. I haven't told my husband. Done it. He wasn't supposed to be in the room. <laughs> Look at these baby-faced people on our wedding day. 
<laughs> we willingly, excitedly said our mutual yes that day and it was as serious a commitment as we could possibly make. But we had no idea. We had no idea what we were saying yes to. <laughs> That was my husband. <laughs> I know, it's true. No one standing at the altar for the first time and uttering their loved up yes has any idea what they are in for with marriage. It, it was a sure beginning, but it doesn't take just one yes to see a marriage through to completion. It takes hundreds and thousands of yeses over the course of the years to keep that commitment. It takes surrender to the person you're giving your yes to or partnering your yes with. So flashing back to yesterday for a minute, I later found out during the course of the day that I dodged a massive bullet because there had been a plan to ask me to take them bungee jumping. <coughs> And it was only that it would have blown the entire budget <laughs> that it would have, and that would have been the end of the fun that they decided not to. Thank the Lord. <laughs> I put that rule in place early. Um, because here's the thing. If they had asked me to do that, though, um, I would have had to really double down on my commitment to say yes. Because I can't think of worse than bungee jumping. I have been skydiving. I won't do that again. <laughs> but I have done it, but I am not going to bungee jump if I can at all avoid it. So there is your yes and there is your next yes. The yes that you need to keep on making. Because when you make a commitment to your kids to say yes, and then they think of the one thing in the world you most hate to do, do you still say yes? Do you still say yes? When you say yes to the ring and yes to the dress, do you also say yes to the inevitable glorious mess of marriage? When you say yes to follow Jesus, do you continue to say yes when the plan goes in a different direction to your comfort zone or when you suffer disappointment or rejection or loss, do you follow him into the valleys as well as the peaks? Can God still get a yes from you when it's not what you expected and it's not what you wanted or it's going to be harder than you thought? Because there comes a moment where God is asking you, do you still trust me? Will you still go my way? Will you still surrender to me? Will you still follow me? When what I speak to you leads you to a place that you didn't know to expect, will you still keep saying yes to me? Because a real yes is going to reach past your flesh. It's going to reach past your feelings and past your experience and sometimes past your logic and past what's popular and past opinion. That's what a yes from your spirit looks like. That's the yes described to us in 2 Corinthians. His spirit stamped in us so that we can complete the yes that God begins. And when God says yes, we know it's a sure thing. There's an account of a um, hopeless situation in 2 Kings chapter 3. And it occurs in a time in history where the Israelite nation was split into two kingdoms and both kings joined with the Kedem. So we have three kings to attack the nation of Moab because they had begun to rebel against the Israelites. And they were a notoriously dangerous enemy of the Israelites. And so this combined army kind of ends up going on a looping detour through the desert and ends up in the badlands of Edom. The badlands of Edom. It sounds very kind of like, oh no, <laughs> don't go there. With um, 
And they end with no water left. <clears throat> no water left for all of the animals, none for the soldiers. And no water in a place called the Badlands with your enemy onto you is probably not a great position to find yourself in. So the kings decide, we need to consult God. We're in a bit of a pickle. Let's see what he says. And so this is in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, This is the prophet speaking. He said, God's word, dig ditches all over valley. Here's what will happen. You won't hear the wind. You won't see the rain. But this valley is going to fill up with water. And your army and your enemies and, sorry, is going to fill up with water and your army and your enemies and animals will drink their fill. This is easy for God to do and he will also hand over Moab to you. You will ravage the country, knock out its fortifications, level the key villages, click out the orchards, clog the springs and litter the cultivated fields. So he's describing a resounding victory. God says, yes. But can you imagine the reaction of the soldiers? This is what we want you to do about your thirst. In a land where water is scarce and you might fight over one well for 400 years and it's nowhere near the surface, we want you to go out and sweat and expend the last of your energy not to get out of the situation but to stay here and dig. <laughs> Hello, mutiny? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> do you think that that would have made a lick of sense to any of them? I don't think so. And yet they did not hesitate to give the order, to say yes again when it made no sense to do so, to give their next yes, their amen to God's yes, to say yes, we will follow you, to go past logic, past experience and lay down our yes. And I tend to think that a motivator for them to proceed with this crazy thing was that King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, had been in a spot like this before, a battle and godly advice Um, to not proceed, and he didn't take it. And he'd paid the price dearly before. He understood that withholding his yes from God looked like it was disappointment. It didn't get him further towards his goals like it thought he would. And I'd like to think that um, he wasn't willing to try that again. And so they dug their holes, and they dug their holes, and they used their energy, and they waited all night long, and they did not see the rain, and they did not feel the wind, but... But they hear a yes from God and they added their amen and then they waited. And then in verse 20, we see in the morning, the water had arrived. Water pouring in from the west from Edom, a flash flood filling the valley with water. And by this time, everyone in Moab had heard that the kings were up to make war against them. Everyone who was able to come, uh, able to handle a sword was called into service and took a stand at the border. They were up and ready early in the morning when the sun rose over the water. And from where the Moabites stood, the water reflected the sun looked red like blood. Blood. Look at the blood, they said. The kings must have fought each other. A bloody massacre. Go for the loot, Moab. And when Moab entered the camp of Israel, the Israelites were up on their feet, killing Moabites right and left, the Moabites running for their lives, and the Israelites relentless in pursuit. God laid a yes before them. They chose to say an amen. And they said it with a shovel. Your ordinary next yes partners with God's yes, and the ordinary becomes miraculous. God not only supplied their needs, but also went ahead of them and gave them the victory in the entire battle. Their yes had consequences. Because it kicks you into the grace zone. 
It's true for them and it's true for us. When you lay down a spirit-fueled amen to God's yes, you put yourself in a position where you need to rely on him. My kids found so much enjoyment when I put myself in that position with them. They were like, great, now we can do anything. And I like to think that God has that same giddy joy when we give him the power of our yes. And he said, awesome, now we can do anything. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.